Hello, welcome to the latest edition of The Bunker USA. I'm your host, Andrew Harrison. It's been an extraordinary month in Washington after the surprise removal, they'd call it the ouster, of Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. On October the 3rd, a small group of right-wing Republicans voted the Speaker out, partly in revenge for McCarthy's insufficient intransigence when it came to dealing with President Biden and the Democrats. And after a tortuous process of nominating Louisiana Representative Steve Scalise for the Speaker's chair, even that fell apart. Scalise withdrew almost immediately afterwards. The whole episode is just the latest in a seemingly endless run of obstruction, spoilers, bad faith arguments and political nihilism from the so-called Freedom Caucus and their associates on the Republican right. As the New York Times put it, how can it be that fewer than a dozen lawmakers from the outer fringes of the Republican Party are holding one of the world's oldest democracies hostage to their wildest whims? So who are these hard right members and what is the Freedom Caucus all about? Do outside figures like the orchestrator of McCarthy's downfall, Matt Gates, the loose cannon Colorado representative Lauren Bobus, failed wannabe speaker Jim Jordan or the combative Marjorie Taylor Greene actually share a political goal? What do they want and are they going to get it? To explain the mysteries of the Freedom Caucus, I'm joined by Director of the Centre on US Politics at UCL, Thomas Gift. Hello, Thomas. Hi, it's great to be with you. Thanks, thanks for joining us. So, Matt Gates and the Freedom Caucus sounds like the worst band name ever. What is the genesis of this grouping? Because it grew out the Tea Party, didn't it? Well, to, to some extent, you know, but I think that it's a distinctive group. And I think one of the difficulties with understanding uh, this cadre of far-right lawmakers is that they don't have a real coherent uh, set of ideas. You know, they seem to be in favor of, of fiscal restraint, but I think what defines them more is just a desire to kind of blow up the system, uh, to take a torpedo to, to Washington and just disrupt uh, the status quo. And they've certainly been successful at doing that, if nothing else. But, you know, it's kind of a hodgepodge uh, group. Um, some individuals are kind of more staunchly Trumpist. Some are, I think, a little bit more defined by an independent streak, but they all sort of coalesce around this idea that they don't like how Washington is operating. There are about 45 Freedom Caucus representatives or Freedom Caucus associates out of 222 Republicans. Have they acquired so much power? Well, it's largely a function of the political system. I mean, especially whenever it comes to the, the speaker's gavel, you need to get a, a majority. And so, because um, the House of Representatives is so closely split between uh, Democrats and Republicans, you really need all the Republicans to unite behind an, an agenda or in a leader in, in order to get anything done. So I think we really have to take a step back to some extent and look at what happened in the 2022 midterms. There was no red wave, uh, so to speak, that was expected. And that really gave Republicans a razor thin majority, uh, much smaller than they were expecting. Uh, if that majority had been much more considerable, then it would have become much more difficult uh, for just a small group uh, of right-wing radicals to exercise so much clout. But because we have this divided government kind of shifting majorities, you know, it gives a, a lot of power to a relatively small number of individuals. The Freedom Caucus used to have a core of belief that was kind of standard hard right, you know, against immigration reform, pro-small government, anti-Obamacare. But it seems to have evolved into this mixture of Trump fan club and kind of chaos gang. What, what role was the Freedom Caucus fulfilling during the Trump presidency? Because they were founded in 2015, weren't they? That's right. You know, I, I think to a large extent, 
what characterizes that this group is not even necessarily, you know, their their political agenda. Of course, it's a kind of disrupting the system, as we talked about before. But uh, many of these individuals just like being on camera, I think, and they become almost kind of de facto celebrities, uh, cause celebs for the right wing uh, kind of group, um, and, and Trump in particular. And so if you think about Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, you're more likely to kind of see them making headlines for various kinds of outlandish statements, um, as well as going on Fox News or Newsmax to, um, you know, defend uh, former President Trump. So, you know, it, it, it's it's just such an interesting group, uh, again, because they're not necessarily defined by a, a core set of ideological ideas, which usually when we think about sort of factions operating in Congress, traditionally, they've sort of coalesced around one idea, whether that's fiscal restraint, um, you know, law and order or something else. But uh, th- this group is, is something different. Many of them have uh, embraced conspiracy republicanism, you know, the ideas of, the, you know, they're still an election myth excusing the January the 6th insurrection. Has Trump in exile kind of radicalized them further? Well, I think that that's true, but I also think that maybe um, Trump has been radicalized by them. I think that there are elements of, of the far right that have sort of gone beyond Trumpism or beyond even what Trump is willing to say, which is, which is kind of remarkable. And, and in particular, you know, the Donald Trump was generally uh, an advocate of uh, Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker. And so really, um, this group of uh, hard right representatives kind of went rogue in some sense um, by by ousting him and, and defied Trump. We used to be able to talk in terms of a Republican establishment, you know, the, the, the lost world of Mitt Romney, that kind of thing. But there still is a kind of an establishment in the, in the party, it's much more right wing than it was. How are they handling the Freedom Caucus and its and its kind of extended world? Because, you know, the impression I get is just of absolute exasperation. Well, I think that's true. It, it is a little bit hard, I think, now to talk about a quote unquote establishment or even, you know, quote unquote, moderates, these sort of country club Republicans that look like Mitt Romney, you know, or, you know, dating back a little bit further, um, John McCain or going way, way back to George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush. You know, I I think one of the challenges here is that this group kind of indulged the far right for quite some time. And, you know, I, I think that they were sort of willing to overlook um, some of the real problems that uh, were arising within their conference. Um, but because that group was uh, relatively small, they still kind of maintained uh, most of the power. But as that far right sort of gained more and more and more traction and appealed to more and more and more uh, Republican voters, um, th- their influence and their clout and their, and their power uh, amplified to the point where, you know, now they just feel so emboldened. Um, and, and I think it's only, you know, now where they can see that this, wow, this is really disrupting what we're doing, that those uh, so-called sort of middle of the road Republicans are really feeling completely exasperated. But I do think that they bear some responsibility for kind of turning a blind eye um, to that group for, for so long. One sort of short and snappy way that these characters have been summed up is the idea that these are people who don't believe in government and consequently when they get into government are going to do their utmost to make government not work so that they can point and say, there you go, government is in itself fundamentally flawed. Is that is that too glib? 
No, I think that there's probably something to that. I think it's an insightful uh, observation. This is a group that I do think has real skepticism toward government. Um, and yeah, to the extent that you're sort of anti-government or kind of embrace a sort of set of nihilistic principles, you can actually reinforce that narrative by ensuring that government doesn't work. So, you know, I think it's, yeah, sort of doubly uh, effective for their own story that they're trying to tell to voters. But certainly, yeah, this is complete dysfunction and it's being uh, brought primarily, although not entirely, uh, by a group who, who is skeptical of the, the merits of government and its appropriate role and scope in American public life. I want to talk about a few of those individual members, particularly the Florida representative, Matt Gates, because he was Kevin McCarthy's nemesis. A lot of our listeners will have uh, will have seen Gates uh, on the news. He's a very odd, striking figure. Seems like something out of Carl Hyacin with his Elvis Pompadour. Um, what sort of figure is he and what kind of power does he actually have in the House? Well, I think... You know, Matt Gates has really created his own power by going out on a limb um, and challenging so much of the Republican uh, establishment. He's from Florida. He's from a kind of far right conservative district. So he doesn't really have much to fear in terms of a real general election challenger. And I think that that's really a feature of a lot of these uh, far-right Republicans, which is that they feel so emboldened precisely because they're from districts where they're unlikely to lose their spot. So I think to a large extent, you know, Matt Gates is symptomatic uh, and representing his own constituents. Um, but yeah, he's, he's on Fox News. He's on uh, other right-wing uh, media outlets. He, he certainly enjoys being the center of attention, much like Donald Trump himself. But he has single-handedly really brought Washington to its knees in the last week or so. Well, like Trump also, he has, you know, check it history barely covers it. it it's He's had multiple ethical cases against him, including sexual misconduct. He was investigated in a sex trafficking case and an associate was actually jailed for it. He's voted numerous times um, against, uh, I think, one was a, one was a sex trafficking, trafficking piece of legislation, another was to do with modern slavery, and then gets investigated for something very close to that. It's astonishing to imagine that somebody could still have standing with a history like that. It is. Um, I think it's shocking, but maybe not entirely surprising, given how much leeway voters seem to give to representatives right now. It's almost like they compartmentalize morality insofar as they're willing to overlook a whole host of ethical uh, lapses, some very egregious, if that representative is willing to you know, go to bat for them in terms of uh, policy or go to bat for them just surely in terms of, you know, challenging uh, Democrats and, and really being a, a vocal voice that, you know, is hard charging and, and trying to articulate their views. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a real kind of curiosity uh, because most of these are individuals that particularly the evangelical right, um, you know, even 10 years ago would have rejected wholeheartedly and would have absolutely no political career. But it's almost like some of these figures can just kind of escaped relatively unscathed, um, whereas others, you know, uh, for a typical politician, they would just um, see their political careers and fortunes blow up in flames.
I want to talk about Steve Scalise. He's dropped out of the race for speakership now, but he was tipped for the top. Why was he in contention in the first place? He was kind of the number two man under Kevin McCarthy as House Majority Leader. He has quite a lot of experience uh, in Congress and I think is generally well liked uh, by other members of the Republican conference. And so compared to Jim Jordan, which we can talk about uh, in just a moment, he's considered the establishment candidate for the speakership. I think the irony, though, is that he's probably just issue by issue further to the right than uh, Kevin McCarthy. And I think that really, you know, is ironic because Democrats helped to oust Kevin McCarthy. And sort of pretty much as soon as the vote was in to nominate him for the Speaker's chair, multiple House Republicans were saying they they wouldn't vote for him. Uh, Presumably this is, again, the same small hard right caucus. What have they got against him or have they actually not got anything against him? They just want to prolong the chaos. Well, I think that there's something to be said for just prolonging the chaos. You know, they've sort of got the power now. They want to make sure uh, whoever the future leader is, that they know that at a moment's notice, they may have the power to oust them. And so I think to an extent, it's just a, a power move, you know, to, to show that they're in charge. Um, you know, again, they may favor uh one leader uh, who they think kind of more aligns with their their views than than Steve Scalise. But, you know, this is kind of the remarkable aspect of where we are, which is by any measure, Steve Scalise is very conservative, you know, and for him not to be sufficiently conservative or not to be articulating positions that are uh, sufficiently to the right that that parts of the Freedom Caucus want, it, it really shows where we are today with, with American politics, which is you just have to be so ideologically pure and you have to be so willing to kowtow um, to, to certain interests to kind of move up anywhere in this leadership position, which goes back to the the previous question that, that we had about how did these relatively small group of, of individuals attain so much influence? You mentioned Jim Jordan, who I imagine is fuming today, one of the most shameless uh, figures, the co-founder of the Freedom Caucus, I believe. What power does Jordan represent? And does the fact that he's failed to get the nominations indicate that he's on the fade? Well, I wouldn't say that uh, yet. I I think it's just still very much up in the air how all these negotiations and sort of backdoor machinations are going to to ultimately end up. You know, uh, Jim Jordan does enjoy the support of Donald Trump. So earlier this week, Donald Trump came out and vocally um, said that he supported Jim Jordan. And that's not surprising because if there's anyone in, in Congress that has sort of uh, been a outspoken champion of, of Donald Trump over the last few years. It's been Jim Jordan. He also uh, really was the leading voice for launching this impeachment uh, proceedings against Joe Biden. Um, so he's he's you know if Steve Scalise is sort of a, a consistent conservative. Uh, Jim Jordan is, is far to the right of that. Um, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll see. There is a non-zero possibility that Donald Trump could be president again. Where does the Freedom Caucus fit into a future Trump presidency universe? Well, not even a, a non-zero possibility. I think it's a reasonable possibility that Donald Trump will be uh, the, the next president. I think if you look at the polling uh, right now, it's it's virtually a, a dead heat. Um, so for those who kind of think that it's impossible or highly unlikely that Donald Trump is going to get the presidency, I, I think they're really deluding themselves. I mean, if Donald Trump is elected to the White House, um, I think this 
Freedom Caucus is certainly going to play a, a pivotal role. But of course, that depends on ultimately what happens in House races and what happens um, in, the, in the Senate races. Um, will there be a majority in particular in, in the House of Representatives that will determine, I think, how much uh, of an influence that this small group continues to wield over the policy agenda and just generally how the White House operates and, and Congress operates? Just finally, the New York Times wrote this morning that there is a significant faction of lawmakers who do not see themselves as bound by their traditions of party discipline and loyalty. They are not moved by the political spectacle House Republicans have made or by government instability. They want it their way, even if a majority of their colleagues have decided otherwise. Is is that finally it, that, that this is, you know, the, the, the Trump virus of it's only legitimate if I win has kind of infected the House as well and, and that... Ultimately, they want it their way and their way is anarchy. Well, certainly they want it their way. I mean, it's their way or or the highway. The one thing that I will note, particularly in in contrast uh, to the UK for a British audience, is that political parties have always been somewhat weaker in in the United States. And so I I would be hesitant to say that these uh, factions within the Republican Party, as well as within the Democratic Party, are entirely new. I think that the way um, just a small handful of individuals are comfortable expressing themselves and the kinds of views that they are articulating are just so far outside of the mainstream, that's a little bit different. Um, But I think, you know, procedurally, there always has been sort of um, a lot of uh, backdoor uh, bickering, um, you know, jostling for position. The Republican Party, in particular, it's a, a big tent party comprised of libertarians and country club uh, Republicans and fiscal hawks um, and the evangelical community as well. So, you know, coalescing those very diverse interests is uh, difficult and it always has been. And so that's that's the one thing that I that I would be reluctant to do, which is, you know, it's it's important not to overstate the extent to which these divisions are new. But but I do think that just the extremism that's being promulgated um, by, by some individuals and just their glee, seemingly, uh, of disrupting the system it is something different. And it doesn't just defer to sort of a sense of institutional uh, stability that we have may, may have seen from Republicans in the past. Thomas Kift, thank you for joining us on Bunker USA. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. Listeners, thanks for listening to The Bunker. Uh, It's thanks to people like you that we can stay independent and on the virtual airwaves. So if you've enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please do think about supporting us on Patreon. If you chip in as little as £3 a month, you'll be helping to keep the lights on in The Bunker and you'll get every episode a day early and without adverts. Contribute a little bit more and stylish T-shirts and mugs can be yours. Most importantly, though, you'll get that warm glow of knowing that you are keeping independent media going. Search Bunker Patreon or follow the link in the show notes to find out more Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker USA was written and presented by Andrew Harrison. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, the Bunker USA is a Podmasters production.